Welcome to another episode of the Rental Journal Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the equipment rental industry. I'm your host, Mark Simonson, and today's guest is Alexander Schulzlow. Alexander is the president of International Group and the original founder of Smart Equip. For those of you that don't know what Smart Equip is, Smart Equip is an innovative technology company connecting equipment owners with manufacturers. And you're probably thinking, what does that actually mean? So basically, uh, from a procurement side, you can streamline your inventory and spare parts per processing on one platform. You can look up all the catalogs for your equipment and see what parts are associated with the equipment. And you can also have an e-commerce platform where you can upload all your parts and be a one-store multi-brand marketplace. I managed to catch up with Smart Equip while I was completing my US tour earlier this year, and they're based in Connecticut. And last year, Smart Equip was actually acquired by Ritchie Brothers. I found this discussion super interesting. Alexander actually first joined the equipment rental industry when Caterpillar was looking at expanding out uh, their rental network, and then would eventually go on to start Smart Equip with a couple of others and be the founding CEO. So hope you enjoy the podcast and yeah, let's get into it. Smart Equip has kindly hosted me at their office and I'm with Alex and I can't pronounce your last name, so we're not <laughs> going to say it. So thank you for coming on the Rental Journal podcast. Mm, thank you. So so to start off with, we've never actually met before, so I, well, we might have, but I don't remember mm-hmm. and then had a lot of details. So I'd be quite interested in learning <clears throat> more about your story. Mm-hmm. So... I've heard you've been in the industry for a while. Uh, so how did you first come about being involved in the equipment rental industry? It's actually a really a strange set of coincidences. Um, when I, in the uh, mid nineties, I was a very young assistant professor at New York University. And that was a job I'd always wanted to be an academic and do research. And I had a dual background, both in, in economics and political science <clears throat> and did a lot of uh, statistics and what later became known as big data and machine learning, we did a lot of the precursors at the time. And I was also setting up a data center for NYU, which I had previously done for Harvard and MIT. And then through a weird uh, coincidence, I ran into someone uh, who said that they had been invited back to Caterpillar to help them get into the rental business. And that he had done that once before on his own, and they had really struggled with systems. And I had done a lot of systems work, and so he said, hey, will you come with me and take a look at this opportunity? And I did, and weirdly, um, in that one week, on that one-week trip, uh, fell in love with this whole industry. It was kind of fascinating. And in many ways, it was also a precursor to the shared economy and various other things that were going on. So, so I became involved, and at the end of the week, he said, will you become a co-founder of this um, company I'm setting up for Caterpillar? And the company was called Caterpillar Rental Services Network. Um, it uh, began its focus in South America. I was still a, a professor at the same time and, 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 and was one of the co-founders of that group. And then as I worked on that, I became really interested in the uh, workflow or in the equipment lifecycle. And there were a lot of challenges in how do we get parts and service information to the right people at the right time while they're working on equipment, while they're guaranteeing uptime and so forth. And, uh, and that was an incredibly complex problem And I was surprised because at the same time you had all this technological revolution happening where people were building procurement systems and all the the dot-com stuff. Mm. And I said, there's got to be a solution in there somewhere. And then I realized that the problems the typical service guys were trying to solve at the time, which is, how do I get, I have have hundreds of different um, suppliers into my fleet. I've got millions, literally millions of different parts I need to um, have access to at any time, information-wise, and then actually getting physically getting the part. And how do I get all of this information at the right time so that I can repair my equipment? And I thought, well, it's, it's a hard problem to solve, um, but why is nobody paying attention uh, to this problem from the whole dot-com procurement side of things? And the reason is um, parts are actually not very expensive in themselves. They're about 1.5% of what you spend every year as a rental company as parts. And they said, well, why pay attention? Let's pay attention to the big ticket items. But parts as a transaction is by far the most expensive thing you'll, uh, you'll ever do in a rental company. It's difficult to find when you get it wrong, which is a lot of the time in those days. Your equipment is not running, so you have no revenue. So there were a lot of things happening. Uh, but most interesting to me 
solving that required a lot of the methods that I'd gone into academia uh, to do. The whole big data stuff, how do we ingest very complicated data and simplify it for the user. So, so I got wound up in all of this and um, began for six years working, as, again, as a, uh, as a partner and co-founder of, of this Caterpillar group. And then while I was there, I thought, hey, there is a solution. And so I started working on inventing this platform. Um, I was very naive, thinking this is going to be easy to bring to market, which was silly. Um, but then we built it, and I peeled off. And my partners from that first entity, we all became um, co-funders uh, as well as co-founders. Or I, I had one other that, that, that came over and, and, and uh, was a co-founder. And, uh, and then we began back in 2000 and never really left this industry, although we since uh, we've branched into other verticals. But, uh, but that's really the weird, weird way in which um, <laughs> we ended up in the rental industry. So, so what, was your, what was your study? You said it sounds like you were very technical. So I had a strange background. Um, I, I did a dual uh, PhD degree, um, and it was partly in, in economics and partly in political science. And this was back at, um, in, the, in the early 90s in, in Harvard. And, but at the same time, to do these two, you had to do quite a bit in statistical methodology. Nowadays, we call it data sciences and so forth. But really, much of it had to do with how do you take vast amounts of data and, and make them usable mm. um, without being a data scientist, which became my big uh, thing. So then I was hired um, by NYU um, to teach those disciplines. And I'd done a lot of research into um, mass behavior and voting, again, using quantitative methods and all that, voting and consumption and all these uh, very, very different seeming but uh, topics where people act in a certain way. Um, but I was also hired to set up a data center at NYU at the time. And um, so it was really a combination. Technology was always there. In those days, unlike today, in those days, um, to do anything that required statistical methods or data sciences meant you really had to know technology. Today, you have applications. You tell it the problem, they'll code it, they'll come back with a result. Yeah. But there, unless you did your own programming, um, you couldn't. So there was always a very tight link to having to know technology, whether you're good at it. And I was not particularly good at it. But whether you wanted to or not, you, you kind of had to, to get your arms around it. Mm. And so... So getting involved in that initial Caterpillar project, what was rental like at that point in time? You know, it's really interesting. There were two things happening. Um, the North American market in particular was beginning this massive roll-up exercise. So there were all these, um, what we used to, well, we still call mom and pop organizations, really mid-market companies. And then this was purely a Wall Street play. Companies like United Rentals, um, they began by uh, buying U.S. rents, which was one of the largest, if not the largest company. United Rentals quickly became the largest. And just, I think they did, and there was one year where they did 200 acquisitions in a year. Yeah. Uh, so that was happening. And then there was a race between what was then United Rentals, still is, and Nations Rent, which has still become, since become part of Sunbelt. So there was this runaway stuff that was Wall Street fueled. Uh, and, and all those companies became quite a bit larger, I think, than anybody intended. So that was one side of it. Um, but then on the other hand, you had all these very traditional cat dealers, and they were not into rental. Uh, they wanted to sell machines. Um, and then the uh, one thing that became clear is if they wanted to participate, and, and, but they also recognized that the world was going toward rental. Other parts of the world already had. Japan has 85, 90% rental penetration, so pretty much any machines you see will, will be in the part of the rental fleet. Um, and in those days, in the U.S., it was about 20%. We're now north of 50. So, so you saw the trend. And, and the reason our company came about, the first one, not Smart Equip, but the Caterpillar company, was how do we get these early cat dealers uh, to be competitive there? United was not going to buy Caterpillar equipment because they could only do so via dealers. And they said, forget it. Uh, we only buy from manufacturers. Um, so that's when Caterpillar said, we need our own rental organization. And we became involved in helping sort of craft best practices and so forth. And it happened to be South America because in those days, Caterpillar was organized by geographic region, which is different today. But uh, we later on, we did work in the Middle East. And so, so to some extent, some of the things you see today uh, when you see the cat rental store really came out of that particular project, um, what's now, I feel old, but 25, 30 years ago. <laughs> and so this, this 
company that cat set up and then you went down to south america for so what was the actual purpose of, of the company like you mentioned those data and then rents were like what, what was like the listeners are probably interested to in understand the yeah. the backbone of that company uh, that very same person i just mentioned his name was vic fontaine like the lounge singer but but not related <laughs> at all um he had been a cat employee 10 years earlier and he predicted that the future of equipment use and distribution was going to be rental and they tasked him, say, put a program together, which ultimately they rejected. And, and he, was a, he became one of my best friends, so I can say this. He was a very stubborn guy. So he went off and uh, did some rental initiatives himself with, with uh, another gentleman called Paul Coogan, who is very well known as one of the founders of the rental industry. Uh, and then about 10 years later, Caterpillar or the you know, South America, SIECO, uh, which is Cat Americas, came back to him and said, look, we were wrong. Uh, come back and do this. And he said, I will, but not as a CAD employee. We really have to set up a company to get this done very quickly. Um, and then he, um, uh, I got to know him because my parents in those days were living in Singapore. He was, had just been stationed in Singapore when he was asked to come back. And I was there over Christmas. And then he said, look, I tried this once before. Um, will you help me? Because I stumbled over the uh, system side of things. So that's how the, the whole thing started. The, um, but, what we, but the mission here was, uh, what was really great about that company, we grew it quite quickly. We had about uh, six senior partners. And what was really great about this, none of us wanted to do this for the rest of our lives. Uh, so we wanted to make ourselves redundant as quickly as possible. We, so we defined best practices. All of them, I was the only one that didn't have rental industry experience. I was there for systems. And because of my economics background, I was there to help model all the hyperinflation settings that were going on in those days, which actually helped us for rental creation. Mm. Um, but, but in any event, I was there for that, but they were all uh, rental experts. And, they, um, um, and we went to these dealers, so we wanted to establish the best practices so that we didn't have to be there, but it became a program by which more and more um, of these could join. So in the end, I think we worked in 45 countries. Um, uh, I think there were about 85, 90, something like that, uh, locations overall. Um, and they themselves, once, the, once they were trained, and it was always usually not the original generation, but the, the, the son, sometimes daughter, uh, would take over that initiative because it was such a break with the normal mm -hmm. cat, rental act uh, sorry, cat dealer activity. Uh, but that's, that's how they grew. And, and so we still, to the present day, on a very personal basis, have great... Uh, relationships with many of these cat rental stores all across South America. Mm, but all, all those, that deep study that you did, yeah. did you ever think that you'd end up in this industry? Um, you know, I, I very much wanted to early on. Um, to be perfectly honest, um, that pr when, when, he, when Vic asked me, will you come and, and help me with this? Uh, this was literally two days before Christmas in a Korean restaurant after a lot of beer. <laughs> so you say yes. Um, <laughs> And this was in December. Now, I had just started my dream job of all time, which was the academic one. Uh, and then in July, I think, of the following year, I get a call from this guy called Vic, and he said, hey, we're ready to go. I said, where are we going? He said, we're going to do a one-week trip and look at equipment rental companies. And I was 28 years old, living in New York City, and I like working and doing my research and, and, and maybe going to a jazz bar in the evening. I did not want to spend a week uh, in the middle of summer <laughs> around Texas looking at um, equipment rental companies. But it was fascinating to see how all these uh, statistical uh, problems I used to try and solve, all these data problems, I looked around and I saw them everywhere. It's a little, this is a little far-fetched, but it's a little bit like uh, when you watch The Matrix mm. and you're looking at something and suddenly you see all these numbers yeah, going yeah. around. It's, a, it's an exaggeration, but still, it, it, the, the logistics surrounding the equipment life cycle, it's not rental specific, but the equipment life cycle in general uh, are really, really fascinating. Mm. And anything you can do to create efficiency in any of them the, the, the way to make a part less, a spare part, for example, a part less expensive is not to reduce its cost. It's to reduce everything that goes around it. You may be able to reduce its cost by 5%, but if you do everything around it, that part is free mm. at the end of the day because of what you're saving. Yeah, so that, that's an interesting topic I want to cover, mm -hmm. the equipment life cycle. So could you explain like what the definition of the equipment life cycle is yeah. and just sort of at a high level summary? So very roughly, there, there are two ways to look at it. Um, if I'm at United Rentals or Sunbelt or Actio or any, of, any rental company really, for me the life cycle economics are very simple. There is a cost when I first purchase a piece of equipment and then somehow factored into this equation, I know that at the end of its life with me, that's not the end of the life of the equipment, because in North America, 
we tend to keep it, in Europe it's the same thing when there isn't a supply chain shock in a global pandemic but we tend to keep our equipment for five years let's say four five six years depending on what it is so there's a cost when I first buy it and then I get some money for it when I sell it so the difference between the two is a big part of my life cycle cost so that's what I look at and then while I have it I have to do two things I have to feed it service uh, because people have to, there's maintenance, there's repair, there's all that kind of stuff. And to do that, I have to also buy parts. Those are really the two things. So a very, very simple, I'm hesitant to call it a mathematical equation, but a very simple one is how much do I pay for it? Deduct from that uh, what I got when I sold it again. And sure, there's an interest rate and all that, but let's forget about that for now. And then it consumed along the way and consumed a lot of parts and service. And so that's the life cycle. Uh, if, if, uh, that's the ownership life cycle, uh, the ownership-based equipment life cycle. Uh, what's really interesting and that we were always really interested in is we really want the whole equipment life cycle. We want to start when it's first built to when you melt it down and there's several owners along the way. Mm. That was outside of our reach until Ritchie Brothers bought us because they're now looking at um, uh, the point of resale over and over again and what can be added in services. But but the equipment life cycle is really all, all of those things. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, like when I think of it from an economic standpoint, like you're, you're looking at the cost of maintaining the equipment and you almost want to forecast when that next major repair yes. is coming. And so you know, all right, we can either keep the asset for an extra six months, but then we, we, we might have to pay $50,000 to replace the engine, or we can change out the equipment and then spend $200,000, but then get it for an extra five years. Yeah. That's an interesting, complex problem that I think a lot of ERPs struggle to try and automate. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a very interesting problem. And not only that, um, quite often the, so, so that's what's called the repair or replace decision uh, in the life cycle. And what's uh, additionally interesting is you come up with different solutions or different conclusions depending on whether, uh, how you value the equipment at different times. So there will be some in the, uh, in the organization that value it what we would probably naturally think as being the more, uh, the, the, the way that makes more sense, which is, okay, here it is, what's that equipment worth today? If I sold it at auction or whatever else, so what is it worth putting another $10,000 in repairs in it, parts and service? Um, and then there's another one, which is the purely financial definition, which is I bought this machine, I'm going to have a straight line depreciation over four years, and I'm going to do this. And I've actually been, <laughs> I've been at uh, some of our customers or partners, and I've seen a CFO run into the room saying, hey, you got to go and get this equipment back from the customer, we need to sell it. And he said, what are you talking about? It's making money right now, and it still has about five years of life. He said, yeah, but we're getting close to depreciating it down to zero. So it's, it's mm. more of the financial definition. Mm. Now, that, that's more of a, an artifact of, of, of those kinds of things. Um, but the, uh, the repair-replace um, uh, decision is a really, really fascinating one. And I feel that we are positioned right now to help automate that in a way that just wasn't possible until now. The, the equations and the thinking and everything existed, but the, um, the, the combination of the right technologies to help you identify mm. what is that point, I think we're just starting to enter that. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's very complex. And obviously... Like you, it sounds like you geek out with all the data sets that you can apply and all yeah. the formulas that you can put there. And yeah. as time has gone on with even with the, the IoT side of things, the telematics, it's even more now like mm -hmm. tiny little bits of data and it's no longer, okay, is the engine on or off or what's the hour meter? It's like, right. let's take workflows and make mm -hmm. decisions based upon how the machine is operating. Yeah. It completely changes the, uh, the dynamics for maintaining your equipment. It does. And now, but the thing at the same time, there's such um, interesting, such cool technology that keeps coming out. Um, one thing to bear in mind is that the, a lot of the key performance indicators are exactly the same that they were 20, 30 years ago. People have become more sophisticated in understanding them. The rental uh, industry was ahead of that um, relative to contractors back then because in rental, if, if your machine was down, it wasn't making money. If you're a contractor, you have your own fleet, and that thing is down, just use something else. Yeah. Uh, you didn't, it, nowadays, uh, contractors are equally, if not easily, just as sophisticated as, as the rental side was. So, so there, there are all those uh, types of economics. Um, but they haven't changed. And the other thing to remember is, quite often when we do use technology, there are really two, two types. Um, some of them, in tele the original versions and generations of telematics were very much like that. 
they give you the same data or data, which depending where you're from, they give you the same data that um, you were collecting anyway, but at a higher resolution. So that's one part. Um, so at the same time, you used to see what the hour reader was, uh, hour meter was when you checked it back in, and now you can look it up anytime you want. So that's one part. The other part, which is really pushing the frontier, is you're starting to um, recognize there's an abnormal vibration. You didn't even know that that abnormal vibration meant something was going wrong or that it was abnormal. But because your algorithm, uh, your predictive uh, maintenance algorithm, is watching all these other machines around, mm. um, you're starting to appreciate that, hey, every time that happens, we're going to have a failure in 50 hours. So, so that's, the, that's the big, big new frontier, which, uh, which is uh, based on, on, on data streams. But that's quite a change to what, what, yeah. uh, what we ever had before. One of the things I saw recently with the company called the Fleet Office, so they, they have software and they're pulling all the, the fuel data in yeah. for all the, their companies and that they aggregate the data and let you look at what your fuel rate is yes. amongst assets, but then you can compare that to other people that use their platform. Yes. So I can say, all right, I've got a certain size excavator and why are we burning fuel like twice as much as my competitor but obviously it's uh it's aggregated so you can't see the names but i think it's a pretty cool tool to say all right let's figure out how we can reduce our average cost for fuel burn that um that exact data infrastructure you just described is to my mind uh, sort of the single most exciting transition we're all going through and the idea being and, and we do it in a number of different ways so in your example it's you've got all these performance streams that are coming from different machines they're being aggregated. We always call it cloud, whatever it is, but it's being aggregated somewhere up there. And then you can infer from that what the um, machine type specific performance is, whether it's fuel consumption or anything else, and you can benchmark against that. So everybody is a beneficiary, but you don't give up any confidentiality because of that. And by the way, that's not just there. Uh, one of the companies we know very well, uh, which also happens to be owned by Richie, is Rouse. Yeah. They're looking at all kinds of analytics and rates and stuff like that in the marketplace. They will only use it, and they're only, I think, allowed to use it for competitive reasons once you have at least five fleets you're watching, and none of them is greater than 20% of your observations. Same thing. What, how am I performing relative to the world out there? And it's real time. It's dynamic, mm -hmm. at, or it, it's within 24 hours um, at, at, at minimum. So. So I think that's where, and, and again, this is in our industry, but worldwide, the fact that we can start using machine learning and we can start using artificial intelligence, all of this, is because of this data aggregation and, and, and then compartmentalizing and then benchmarking. Mm, definitely. So then, so then how did you get into smart equip then? So what was the, the entry point there? Huh, yes, we forgot about that one. <laughs> the, um, the, so, so I was, uh, this is now in 2000 or 99 so we had this big dot-com revolution and that's a great now we can just let's wait let's let's go and pick ourselves a this is still under the uh, the um, caterpillar side let's pick ourselves a nice procurement system that also has good technical pubs so we can really start automating uh, supporting our service guys as part of this initiative and there wasn't anything there so i went to um I, and I, I made it a project i went to aviation i went to agriculture i went to across all these different ind industries and recognize two things. Number one is nobody had that. And number two, everybody had the same problem. And then I started looking at um, a lot of the high tech that was there. In those days, you could only do it if you were a high technology company. We were a very, very much a high tech company. We built our own data center. We had massive, huge sun servers and air conditioning systems and static free floors in California, then in Jersey and all this stuff. Uh, it was much harder from that perspective. So, I've, but but as a consequence of doing that, you get to know all the other companies in across the verticals, and you realize they they um, uh, none of them were paying um, attention to this. They were all transactional. Uh, this was sort of the era of early Amazon. It was B two B connectivity. It was EDI transactions. These are all very very simple ways of interfacing and doing transactions, and none of them could understand the machine life cycle. None of them could even understand that if you have, let's take this example, you have two JLG scissor lifts. Uh, they're both old ones, 1932 E2s. And one of them has a serial number 12345 and the other one 23456. And by just by virtue of knowing that difference, you know that this one requires a 20 volt coil in repair and this one is a 24 volt coil. And, um, and none of those systems could handle that unless you code, hard-coded it. So we mm. said, well, and, and, and hard-coding was out of the question because there are millions and millions of yeah. catalogs out there. So we said, if there were a way 
and, and this was extremely naive, thankfully, uh, and thankfully we're dumb enough to think, uh, let's just try this. Uh, if there are a way to integrate directly with the tech pub systems, uh, because the manufacturers are struggling to keep all of this alive, and with the transactional systems, the ERP systems, and take all that information and feed it into the workflow of people that have these machines and do it for hundreds of manufacturers at the same time, this problem would just go away. Now, that's a big if. But that was the model that we worked toward. And then we said, okay, what are the bite sizes that yield products that we can use? So we had a very early web-based parts catalog, um, which looked like any other parts catalog, except you could actually integrate that parts catalog also into your own operations. And that's how we started putting the feelers in for the, uh, for the, for the uh, integrations. And that's really what ultimately became the Smartico platform. It took us six years to get the first 10 suppliers on. Then we accelerated, then we accelerated, and I think we doubled the size of the network. We're now at about 650, 675 different brands. Um, and I think half of that came globally in the last three or four years or so. So, so there's a huge, but it took a long, long time. Yeah, yeah I can imagine. Yeah. So, so maybe just for the listeners that don't know what Smart sure. is, because there's probably a couple out there. Yeah. So maybe just want to break down the basics. Like obviously it relates to purchasing and parts and all yes. sort of stuff. No, that's but a, some people might be going, no, this all you. sounds yeah. great, but I, th- I still don't know what they do. No, thank you. That's, that's a good idea. So, so I think the best way to, to explain is to tell you a story. Um, it, uh, because, and, then, and then explain how it works. So the story is that you're working at a rental company and it doesn't, no longer matters, unlike in the early days, whether you have five locations or 5,000 locations, it now works in any scenario where previously it had to be a large company with its own IT infrastructure. But let's say you're working at a relative mid-market company and you have a fleet management system. So every single one of your machines has a, um, a company uh, asset number on it. And I'm going to stick with the example that I mentioned a little while ago. Uh, one of those is a scissor lift. And that scissor lift comes back from a job. And as you check it in, like you always used to, always have, um, you type in your equipment uh, uh, company equipment number 12345. Now, our system sits inside of your organization. It actually sits in the cloud, but it's integrated um, with your organization or with your fleet management system. And it recognizes uh, your number 12345 is a, uh, is a scissor lift made by JLG. It's a 1932E2, sticking with the same example. And it has a serial number 54321. And from that moment onward, as it goes into service bay, already waiting on the screens are the correct service uh, documents electronically, interactively, uh, the right parts descriptions, and absolutely everything. So all the stuff that you used to maintain, either physically as books or CDs or way, way back as <laughs> microfiche or or now with websites, all that stuff is waiting for you and it's already serial number specific. So a lot of the errors that usually happen in repairs or in parts identi- or that take hours mm. uh, to get to, uh, that's already waiting for you as the machine comes in. So now I'm the service guy. I look at this and I do the, and I, I say, okay, I've got my service documentation here interactively, either on a screen, on an iPad, on my phone, it doesn't matter nowadays. Um, and I select, here are, the three, uh, here are the three or four or five parts that I need to replace. I click on them and the system, because it's also integrated with your um, inventory system, it'll say, okay, you've selected five parts. Uh, two of those you have on your shelf. One of them right here in your location. The other one is in the sister location down the street. But the other three you have to order. And because it's JLG, that means you typically order directly from the manufacturer and it can be here tomorrow. And why does it know that? It's because it's not just integrated with your system, but also with JLGs. So again, instead of spending a lot of time on the phone and or on computers and looking and searching, the, uh, the sourcing information now comes to you as well. Mm. And then finally, when you say, okay, these are the parts I wanna buy, um, it goes ahead and tells you, okay, go pick those two from your shelf. And the other three have been ordered. Um, and I, meaning the Smart Equip system, will now go into your existing purchase order system and automatically generate the purchase order. So no more typing, no more keying, no more manual ordering. I will also, while I'm at it, fill out your work order so you don't have to do any of that. And we'll submit all of this uh, with the right pricing that you negotiated with your supplier right in the back of JLG's um, fulfillment systems. Now, you also guarantee that the pricing is right. So what what does all of that mean? Um, It has a, it's not just a convenience, it actually has a, a massive impact. The first one is, regardless of whether you have a small company or a large one, you can now really set the sourcing rules. That is to say, if we buy these parts, we buy them from JLG. If we buy the other parts, we buy them from the filter supplier, whatever else it is. 
And if we have it on the shelf, we pull it there. And you don't have to train your, your uh, employees, it just happens. And that whole cost control, by making sure it doesn't go into the wrong place, can save you as much as 10% of your over, sometimes 15, depending on what your starting point is, of your annual parts mm. expenditure. And to geek out for one second, annual parts, parts expenditure tends to be 3% of your original equipment cost. So 3% times um, that 10 to 15% gives you, in terms of original equipment value, what, what you save there. That's a big number. Uh, and that's a big number that you didn't think you still had in your transactions. But it's actually a very small number compared to the next benefit. Because we're automating all of this and making sure the orders are right and everything else, the service person themselves, they tend to uh, save 40% uh, of the time that they normally spend in any day. And those 40% that when they don't hold a wrench to repair something, are usually spent looking for stuff, mm. trying to understand the service, making mistakes, or whatever else. We just eliminate that. And if you now look at uh, freeing up 40%, those, those, those wasted 40%, that's a much, much bigger impact. And then it gets bigger one more time over, which is if I save eight, eight hours on that particular repair, that also means that equipment is available the extra eight hours. So the uptime impact is huge. And that's a very, very high margin impact because it's like a hotel room. You're probably going to stay somewhere in the area tonight. So if you just walked into that hotel room and said, I need a room, and they said it's $100, um, you know that of that $100 you're giving them, $99 will go to the bottom line, that $1 for electricity, whatever it is, it's very high margin. And, and it's the same way in rental. If I can enable one more rental by, by making all of this efficient, that's a huge impact on earnings. Not yeah. revenue is there, but earning, it's, it's mostly earnings in that. So if it, that's the hierarchy. So you start with parts pricing and what you spend, that's pretty nice. You look at your service labor uh, savings in a world where it's hard to get mm. service technicians, that's huge. And then you realize every time you solve that, you're also solving your uptime problem. Mm. Yeah, and even just the the delay in having parts. Like, oh. I, think, I think that's like just the the massive benefit. Like I, I've heard so many times of mechanics like spending like hours just trying to find the right part that they need for the machine. And then by the time they order it, the delay for it to actually arrive. And then as you said, the machine's just sitting there. So utilization's down, yes. um, invoicing's down, you can't invoice faster. Yeah. So let's say it's a, da a damage collection for an invoice. Yeah. Means that if that part arrives later, then you can't invoice your customer faster. That's a very big point. I was on a committee in the, in the European Rental Association and I was shocked. If you cannot tell your customer right there and then what it costs that they broke that mirror, collecting that um, customer damage is, is, is near impossible. So that's a, that's a big part. Um, but you're raising a, 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 a overall really interesting point. Nowadays, it's very natural for everybody to say time is unbelievably expensive. If, I, if my service person spends twice as much time on something, that's really, really costly. If my machine is down, it's really, really costly. Now, at the same time, I keep telling people, you know, we were just way too early uh, coming up with a smarter group concert, a concert concept <laughs> um, back in 2000. Uh, we were early, uh, people assumed that's because the technology wasn't there. And that, that's, that's true too. But it was really early because we went to the first rental companies and said, listen, um, you're going to save a lot of time. They said, why do I care? Well, because um, they could do twice the repair in, in the same amount of time or something along those lines. And they said, well, we've got enough people. And then you say, but your machine, you can rent that out. He said, I've got plenty of machines to rent out. So, so the mindset wasn't quite there. It was there in rental before it was a lot of other construction-related industries. But, but nowadays, everybody is talking about uptime and preventing downtime and, and, and predictive maintenance so it never breaks down. All these things are today very much natural, but they weren't when we started, even, those, even though those were our key performance indicators mm. then. And so you mentioned quite a lot of points over there. Like, was that an evolution or like, how did the company evolve over those years? So it, um, it feels like it's a lot of different things going on. And it's true that it touches a lot of different value propositions. Um, but there's a natural reason for that. It wasn't that we started here and said, oh, let's go over there and let's do that. And that is because this is another big contrast to a lot of the uh, dot-com era technology that was coming out. Um, people used to think of systems in terms of silos. We need something for purchasing. Great, let's go and evaluate systems, let's buy that. And that was one division within the company. And then somebody said, we need to really make our service guys more efficient. So you looked at service management systems, maintenance systems, and inventory systems, and all of that stuff. So you really looked by function within the company. We always had a horizontal feel, which is both good and bad. We had a horizontal feel because we were really tracking the life cycle. 
here the machine needs service. And while it needs service, it needs parts. But we've got mm -hmm. to embed the part information in service, including the transactional stuff, because that's the machine logic. It's not the organizational yeah. logic. It's the lifecycle logic, uh, sort of horizontally. So that's what we always focused on. The big drawback for us from a practical perspective, and again, this is where we're naive, um, is to then get, especially a large rental company, to say, yes, we'll do it. A large early mover uh, to say, yes, we'll do it, is you have to get agreement from procurement, you had to get agreement from um, the fleet management and the maintenance side and everything else. So these are all the different silos, which meant unless you got the CFO or CEO to sign off on it, on something that didn't exist as a budget item in the mm. first place, that was difficult because it was always this horizontal view, never the organizational view of saying, hey, we need a, an ERP mm. system to, to do such. Mm. And so size-wise... How many countries is Smart Equip in now? Like, what, what, what size are we talking about? Embarrassed, I, I should know this. Um, so we, um, well, I, I have a few metrics, of course. So, so we started in North America, um, and obviously, and, um, and I think we sort of became the industry standard somewhere around 12, 13 years ago here, maybe 14, somewhere along the ways, uh, in, in that, in that um, order of time. Um, I then, my, my uh, interest was always on the international side, so I began working on Europe. Uh, so the other two areas for us, the other two big areas are Europe and the Pacific Rim. And that's because if you look globally at rental, which is approaching $150 billion in market size, um, uh, very, very roughly 70 of that is North America and another 60, 70 of that is um, between Europe and Pacific Rim. Now, there are changes happening now. India is, start, is much, much larger than we ever realized. Um, I had interesting conversations with uh, the European Rental Association last week that there are all these hidden rental markets. But let's, let's ignore them for now, even though they're very, very important. So you're looking at that. Um, so for us, the focus has initially been North America and then Europe. Um, and then as of uh, about five years ago, so, so 10 years in Europe roughly, uh, nine years, it'll, we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of our first large customer there. And then over the last five years, my focus in parallel has been very much on helping explore the um, APAC, Asia-Pacific, starting with Japan. And Japan is a great market because it's unbelievably fragmented. You have 2,000 rental companies, but the, uh, so, and, and they're all regional, except the top four are about 38% of the market. So in the rest, so if you can get two of those or three of those or four of those uh, to participate, uh, then the rest has to follow because they do set the standard and that's where we are. And two of those four are on our system today. Um, and, and there are a bunch of others, among, even among the 2,000 that are currently following. Mm -hmm. So those are the regions. In terms of uh, countries, I think we're somewhere in 20 to 25. Since, since a lot of these are multinational, that's, that's, what, that's why I can't yeah. give you a straight answer. I have to count. But some Rewall, uh, which is a Dutch company, they have a uh, they have a, a location in India. So we, therefore, we count India. Although nobody in India made the decision to get on Smart Equip yet. Mm, that's amazing. And so, starting a company at that size and seeing what it has become today, like is that a bit of like a does it blow your mind? Like what's what's occurred? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's um, it's it's one of those things you never pay attention to. Um, as you do it, because you think, oh, this would be great because then we light up screens here, or this would be great because then the technicians get excited about it over there. So you always think of it incrementally and not really pay attention to this. But then you go to something like a European Rental Association meeting or some uh, international convention, and you look around, and uh, part of it is is the uh, you're suddenly struck that thanks to our phenomenal marketing department, everybody has a smart equipment lanyard around the neck, so that you suddenly realize, wait, that means something here. But then you realize people coming from this last convention, 17, no, 22 different countries around the world, um, they all knew what it was, and they're all using it or asking to start using it. And that sometimes, in a completely un unexpected way, it does, it does take you aback. Mm. Um, and, and the other thing that really takes you aback is whenever you go into another part of the world, they say, hey, we know what you're doing in the U.S., but we're Europe, it's very, very different here. And that takes a while, but at the end of the day, it's the same metrics. It may be that you keep equipment longer, like in Japan, you keep it for 10 years, not for five, let's say. Uh, but it's the same, and, and so therefore the value of the metrics may be different. Parts and service is much more important on the Japanese life cycle, but you realize that the equipment life cycle, the logic of the equipment life cycle is identical anywhere in the world. And that's also breathtaking that you suddenly have a platform and a solution that, that 
that works equally well in, in these completely different settings. Mm. And so building up a company that large, like, like what do you think was the early, early success points? Was it getting the right team around you? Like what, what do you think really was the, the, the bare bones of the company? So there are different answers for different stages of the like, life cycle. There's one other obscure um, academic link into this. So the research I did, I mentioned briefly um, back in academia, was about how do these mass movements start in voting behavior and in politics? How do they start in consumption? How do you generate mass markets and the like? So, so that kind of stuff. And, um, and, and there's, a whole, there's a whole discipline within um, economics, it's quite mathematical at times, called game theory, where you look at the people interacting with each other and, and what can you do if you want to get their participate? What can you do to, to do this? Uh, to, to get them to, to start these movements. And in a weird way, that was a very, very big part of getting the company established early on. So much of what made it successful in terms of even being adopted in the very early stages is you had to convince people not only will this technology work, because it really only works if everybody's doing this, right? It mm. will only work for the first fleet if they have a significant number of suppliers. And the suppliers will only be interested if there's multiple fleets. So you have to find a way to explain to them in a very transparent way, not, not manipulate them, but really explain to them, look, this is a good idea, and you can be the first mover because everybody is going to be doing it. So you have to convince them that it's already happening even before it starts happening. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. So that's one set of um, uh, skills. And I think those were the ones I felt most comfortable with because that's, again, what I had studied, how do you create bandwagons? And then all of a sudden things took off and we almost died several times in a row because all of a sudden we had to go from concept to building scalability, again, in, in high tech years and all that. And so we reinvented ourselves a couple of times, reorganized ourselves a couple of times and each time brought in a different set of professionals. We had amazing technology leadership early on. Uh, we were very, very fortunate in that. Our, our, um, our uh, founding chief technology officer had built uh, the predecessor to Bloomberg terminals called Quotron. Um, so he had seen an industry adopt something that they thought they would never use. Stock brokers never had screens on their desks, but he knew how to help uh, persuade them. So we did that. But all of a sudden, the skills we had, um, if we kept doing what we were doing before, that would have killed the company. So we bring in a, a different type of professional engineering team. And then again, we restructured in a big way, especially after 2008, 2009. It was one of the many times we... Um, um, uh, we, we died, and I turned to very old friends within the industry, Brian Rich, Fern, who we brought in ultimately a CEO and others, that we, we all knew each other and, and loved the industry in a very similar way and said, guys, we're at that point where we have to completely reshape ourselves there, and that will also then free me up to really focus on the international stuff, which is far more promising in some ways because they already have been doing rental much earlier and, and much bigger. So, so it's so, so yes, it is about surrounding yourself with, this, uh, with, 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 the, with the right skill sets, but the requirements for those in, during these shifts keep radically changing. Mm. And, and fast forwarding today, so Smartacup was actually acquired yes. recently as well. So talk me through that process. You know, it's, um, we, uh, we had a lot of um, shareholders that were early investors um, that after they never expected to be shareholders 15, 20 years later, and they still were, and they were fatigued. And we wanted to do a lot of exciting stuff. So we very quietly explored, um, maybe now's the time to change ownership. And we looked at everything, ranging from um, maybe this should be a private equity um, thing, where money gets put in and, and we do all this over with and, and run hard for another five years and then see another sale, which is usually the way this goes. Or is there a... Um, um, a strategic um, relationship to be had. And we were very excited. Um, at first, I was a bit shocked, actually, when I heard that Ritchie Brothers had an interest. And then very quickly learned that the Ritchie Brothers I originally thought of was the Ritchie Brothers of five, ten years ago. Um, but they're going through a major, major, I should say, we're going through a major, major um, um, reinvention as well by focusing on not just, hey, when can I sell this? And next time you sell it, can I be your platform again? No, what, what, what are the, all the life cycle solutions we can do along the way? So there was such a match in solutions um, that, uh, that really was uh, quite amazing. And so I became very, very hopeful that that would be the transaction. We all were extremely hopeful that that would be the transaction that would work. It also enables something that you touched on earlier. Um, and you, you, you raised this thing about um, you know, repair and replace. 
So let me just walk you through one scenario of the kind of things mm -hmm. that are possible in this new world uh, that weren't before. So you know now what we do um, in terms of parts and service and so forth. And you also know that if a, let's say, uh, let's call a small piece of equipment, a chainsaw comes back um, and it's eight years old, uh, you know that we can just blip in the number and it'll tell you these are the parts you need, this is a service, and you can go ahead and do this. But as you also said, there needs to be something in the background saying, wait a minute, this thing is eight years old, is it worth doing? So another Ritchie Brothers company is Rouse. And Rouse is a, an analytics uh, platform, a dual analytics platform, and it will tell you um, in real time what that, that particular type of chainsaw with that age, with those characteristics in that particular market, what it's, what it's worth. So if I'm now the user, the customer, and I have simultaneously the Smart Equip stream and the Rouse stream, I should be able, uh, even with minimal automation, to say, wait, stop. This is not going to get repaired. Get rid mm. of this. Trash it. Don't even sell it. Trash it. Whatever it is. But those are the kinds of things that are possible that would not have been possible had we gone through an acquisition that was purely a financial one. But now there's a whole new, an absolute uh, vast new horizon that's emerging and all these ways of starting to put together because Richie, in a much, much bigger way than we did in a small way to begin with, thinks of it as a life cycle yeah. uh, as opposed to, again, these, these vertical moments. And then in terms of new products, so I saw there's an e-commerce store as well. So yeah. is the company evolving with new products as well? Yeah, and that's, an, that's a fascinating story in itself. So when we began um, the company, we would go to... Um, a manufacturer and we'd say we'd like to connect your parts diagrams and everything else um, into the workflow of your customers and they said we don't need an online catalog we already have one I said no no we're not we don't want to build an online catalog for your website it's great that you already have one in fact we'll be using that as our source documentation to do this so what we're doing is we do an integrated to integrated uh, connected uh, channel um, that manages um, the service and parts and life cycle and so forth uh, on behalf of your customers. And you, by the way, benefit because it's going to be much less expensive and the quality will be much higher if the customer support you can provide. Um, and then more and more of these manufacturers and other suppliers came on. Um, and then they said, well, wait a minute. I'm already doing all my um, service support through this electronic channel right into the workflow of my, my customers. I'm already doing all the transactional stuff either directly if I uh, fulfill parts directly or via my dealers. Why am I not using the same engine to do this on my own uh, uh, website? In, in Europe, they all call it my web shop. Okay? I guess we call it that here too. But so why don't I just have that? It's just mm -hmm. another channel. Um, and that's what our e-commerce solution is. Now, there are, there are some things that, we, that you no longer have that fleet integration. Um, but on the other hand, you start having um, credit card capabilities and various other things and news and updates and all that. So there's a lot of stuff and, and we're seeing a tremendous swing now back to us. Initially, among those that were already doing, had all the infrastructure in place to support these end users saying, hey, that very same infrastructure can now support uh, our own website, our own web shop. Uh, and now a lot of others that have, not, have done nothing with us uh, and they're using that as well. So it's a very natural evolution from the direction um, but it's also a very nice repackaging of the same technology in a, in a more platform-wide uh, way. Mm. And I think you got quite an amazing stat now. I think you said the top five rental companies in the world also all yeah, use smart equip now. That's a wonderful thing for. So there are two things happening: one on the on the top end, and one on the on the bottom end. Um, and bottom end meaning the size-wise. So the on the on the top end, what's exciting is uh, with Loxam joining. Loxam is the largest uh, rental company in Europe. Uh, they just did the most recent um, uh, new participant on, on the SmartEquip platform, or on the SmartEquip network. Um, and with that, uh, we now have the five largest, globally, the five largest equipment rental companies on. There's United Rentals, there's Sunbelt, um, uh, both of them, United is in, in primarily in the U.S., Sunbelt is in the U.S., but also in, in the U.K. Um, uh, we have Actio, which is the largest one in Japan. They haven't gone live yet. They will later this year. Uh, we have Herc. Um, and we have Luxem. So that's fives. And, 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 and what makes that particularly exciting is um, you have to remember it's the suppliers have to know that um, whether it's manufacturers or the dealers or whatever else, when they come on the platform, there's actually a footprint there. So the large ones are the ones that help set the standard. So that's, that's very exciting. And to have that level of penetration on, 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 the, on an international uh, level. The other part that's exciting, um, in some ways even sort of romantically more exciting, is 
that it really used to be a club just for the large companies. And when I say used to be, that's 15, 20 years ago, uh, 10, 20 years ago, because you used to have to have these data centers and infrastructure. And it was a six, seven digit investment to get that. With the world of cloud-based infrastructure and everything else, it's now, if you have three locations, you can very quickly jump on. We are probably already integrated with your fleet management system anyway. So it's just a matter of turning on the cable channels and now you can get that same level of support. So, so it's nice to see how that spectrum opened and how the large ones are the ones that are really setting the global standard for it. Mm. But everybody can now participate. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that's probably a good touching point as well. So it sounds like a critical path to this is integrating with these, these rental management systems. Yes. So being in so many countries, there's probably a few out there that you have to integrate with. So is that like a very important fact when you do partner with someone that you make sure that you do integrate with their current ERP? Um, it's, you know, it, there are surprisingly few systems out there. It's, it's, a, it's not a massively fragmented market in terms of uh, the systems that are there. But pretty much all the ones that you will have heard of in terms of rental management systems, we do have integrations that are there. And we quite often partner up with these companies and they're eager to do this because for them it's an additional service that can be provided to their users. So, so we have those. But the uh, interesting ones, um, and this I always find a bit puzzling, um, is there are still, uh, especially at this present day and age, there's still quite a few rental companies that build their own. And that's always a bit surprising. If you're in rental, mm. the business model of being in rental is don't buy your own machines, just use them when you need them, come back. So in, in a way, diversify um, and, and focus on what you do best. And yet those very same companies often build their own systems when there's a world of systems out there. It's becoming more rare, but it's not, still not entirely uncommon um, that when we go, in, in Japan, including in Japan, that when we bring somebody on, uh, we then have to do uh, specific integrations with their system. We work with them. Now, thankfully, systems architecture today is such that they're usually designed to talk to one another. Um, it may add a couple of months to the, uh, to the initial build, um, but, it's, but, but we've never stumbled over it that, it that it in any way sort of slows or, or, or mm. prevents a project from happening. So, so we've spoken about Smart Equip quite a lot, but I think it'd be interesting to learn a little bit more about Alex. So you are a person that we can, <laughs> you are a human, so you have a human side. So um, what do you think has been the biggest challenge that you think you've faced in your career so far? Um, I, think, I've, I think I've alluded to this probably a few times. Um, a couple of things. We're frightfully early. We're really, really early doing this. Um, and in a way, it's good because it took much longer to build the technology. Um, so we had that runtime. But it, um, but the uh, you know, speaking candid, we I, this is a rare conversation to usually have. Um, but it's uh, it, it took a toll. I mean, the first eight years in particular were were rough, and we often nearly shut down the company a few times because you run out of money or another crisis happens. Starting with you know September 11th was our first big no, the dot com was our first big one, and then we sort of recovered out of that. That that the dot com crash happened um, two weeks after we incorporated. And, and all the term sheets fell through. Then we sort of got ourselves back on our feet. Then September 11th happened, everything came to a grinding halt. Then there were a few crises along the way. Then 2008 happened. So each time there was, there was many near-death experiences. And, and when you're trying to set a standard, you can't just say, well, we'll just pull back 10%. No, either you are a standard or you're not. There's, it's, it's black or white. So that, that was a challenge and there's a, um, at the risk of sounding a little melodramatic, there's a lot of PTSD that still comes out of that. Um, and that was a very, very difficult, that, that those first 10 years were very mm -hmm. difficult. Um, I was fortunate because once we got the uh, company uh, to a level of maturity and sophistication that we could bring in the team that we still have to the present day, uh, Brian, Fern, I mean, again, as I mentioned earlier, colleagues and friends that have, had known for 10 years before that and that had been quite aware uh, of what this was, we're suddenly at a point where now is the time to really restructure jointly. And the board was very open to that, which, which was wonderful. Uh, so we reshaped it and it made things, and, and at the same time, technology became simpler overall in the world. You didn't have to, again, build everything before you could use it. Um, I'll give you a very simple example. It, it sounds trivial, but it's a huge deal. Today, when you, uh, it's, it's completely common when you're looking at a file structure on your computer, there are these little expanding menus at pluses and minuses, and when you click on it, it expands. Mm -hmm. So that didn't exist when we started the company. But we said that's the right way to guide a, um, a technician through it. 
if you wanted to program that today, you'd say, okay, that's the object. I want a menu object. I want it to look like this. Click, it's done. Right? Exist, it took us yeah. seven months to write from scratch an expanding menu structure, and 2% of the time it failed. <laughs> and when it failed, you couldn't do anything, and you had to restart an entire enterprise, right? So these kinds of things. So we were crazy early. We were crazy naive. Um, at the same time, we were very, very lucky. We thought this would solve parts buying. We never thought it would do service, and I hadn't even touched on back office, that the pricing is right and all that. So we were very lucky in the sense that the impact of the application was much, much bigger than we ever dreamed. And we had crazy dreams. So, so that was the, uh, but I, I don't ever want to go through the first uh, eight, nine years again in my <laughs> life with anything. So, so how did you get through that period then? Was like, how did you manage that stress? Um, I'm not sure. Was, uh, was it relaxing? Was it taking time off? Was it just... There was no relaxing. It was just pushing through, basically. No, and like, at like, the same like, time. Like, like basically saying that no is not an option. Well, no was not an option for two reasons. Uh, one is that a lot of the people who had funded this were friends and family. So um, that was already... That, that made, made it impossible. Um, but the other thing is also, if this had failed... So I start... My, you asked me earlier on about the path. So I, I was very lucky. I got out of graduate school um, very, very early. I was done at 28. So I went straight into the sort of dream academic job, um, but walked away the eve before getting tenure. And the reason, once you have tenure in academia, you can do whatever you want. Basically, well, it's not quite like that anymore, but still, you're, you're very, very safe. And I thought, if I stay for tenure, um, I'll never leave. So I literally quit. And the dean, who was a good personal friend, said, you can't do this. Um, although he then became a co-investor in it. He, he said, if you're going to do this, then at least uh, let me invest. It was amazing. So anyway, so then I left. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. If this fails now, um, I don't have an academic career to fall back on because that's done. Um, I have no standing in the industry because my only role in it was this failure. Um, I didn't have um, permanent residency. I have a European passport. I'd never lived in Europe, so there was nowhere to go back to. So this was quite the uh, multifaceted. Um, th th there was only the, the way forward. I didn't necessarily yeah. know how and what we would do, um, but we didn't have a choice, so we, we had to. Yeah, I can't imagine that stress. I never, yeah. <laughs> so, so then along the way, there would have been some pretty influential people that would have guided you as well. Who do you think were some of the key mentors, do you think? You know, there, um, I mentioned earlier that I'd been uh, at the European Rental Association meetings, and it is remarkable. I'm always surprised. We, again, we haven't done these now in two and a half years because of COVID, but you go back and you always surprise yourself that you literally know hundreds of people over the years. And, and you'd take a look at somebody you hadn't seen and even thought of in a, in a while, and you merely remember what their advice they gave you and how that... So there, there's a very large number of people. I'm fortunate that... Um, it's the same with my colleagues here. I mean, I, I don't think we, we get pretty um, we get pretty passionate in our debates, um, but we constantly learn. So it's a bit of a cliche, but I don't think there's a day when when we don't learn from one another. Um, one of the reasons I find these trips taxing when I'm gone for two weeks is I'm eager to get back and say, guys, we got to sit down and, and go through all of this. We have we I've learned a lot. I just don't know what it is yet. So so there's a lot of that. Um, what is surprising to me. Um, is in terms of mentorship is the extent to which the people I had as my advisors back in academia when I was a grad student, how much in the middle of trying to solve a problem that has something to do with how do we get so-and-so to connect to such-and-such, -such, I suddenly remember something from my you know, mid-20s uh, that came from that. That's very surprising to me. We always joke about academia as what you do when you can't mm -hmm. find anything practical to do. Um, it is that that so there, there are quite a few there and 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 one of the people is um, the guy that was my advisor when I did the bandwagon stuff. He later actually became a, he got the Nobel Prize in economics. A guy called Tom Schelling, and he was a game theorist. But I still to the present day sometimes I start giggling because I realize the way I'm trying to solve how do we get there. That's like a Schelling problem from uh, mm. you know the 1990s or 80s. Yeah, well even with like like any sort of study. It's not always the end result of the study. It's the ability that you've, you've understood how to learn and apply the study. Yeah. That's probably the critical path, yeah? So that, that's very, very much it. And there's one other thing. Um, and we had until recently one of my, again, he, he'd been with us for a very long time at the company. He retired, a guy, Mike Birch, our sales guy. And, um, and we were going through these massive crises and say, how are we going to solve this? And he would suddenly say, hey, we're going to solve it. And I said, great, how? He, and he said, you know why? 
and I thought he was going to come with a solution. And I said, why? And he said, because we have to. Now we just have to figure out how we do it. And it was such, a, and it, I still think of that quite a lot. Um, you, you get to a point when if you've not almost died several times or almost haven't, you suddenly realize there is going to be a solution. You just have to now sit down and uh, have a cup of coffee and, and then let's just figure out what it is. And after a while, that really does stick, as cliched as it sounds. Mm. And so if you could give some advice to young Alex that's finishing grad school, what, what would you say? Yeah, unfortunately, it's not good advice. Um, it, it, uh, I was very, very, we were all very lucky, but I was then very, very lucky because it would have been a disaster if it hadn't worked for, whole, for all the reasons I just mentioned. Um, and it, 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 it was a mistake to do this, but I'm glad I did. <laughs> that's, a, that's a reverse answer. Yeah, so, um, but the other thing is also, and again, you, you, you always read this in, in these advice um, columns. If, 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 it is such a cliche, but you have to trust your instinct. Mm. You just do. And, so, and, yeah. so, so like, just thinking about all the stuff that you've gone through, imagine what someone like Elon Musk is going through then <laughs> with so many yeah. companies. Like, it must be crazy. And it's obviously, a, I mean, it's not even a, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a scale that's uh, uh, unfathomable. But um, he took everything he made on the first one and stuck 100% of that in the second one. Mm. He took everything. So there is a, um, and I don't think it's a, uh, rational or it's a particularly determined or particularly risk-seeking kind of behavior it's just that's the only way it'll work or that's the only way i want to do this i think mm. um so um so so you know once in a while when we on a rare occasion we have these kinds of conversations somebody will suddenly say that, that you must have been very brave and no it was just that was just the only way we would uh, try to do this so yeah it's nice so how do you so Along the way, your views would have changed, but how do you define success today? You know, there, there. Um, that's a that's a that's a great question. Um, and I mean, there are all the obvious answers. Right now, we're growing faster than we ever have. Um, we're growing geographically faster than we ever have, for sure. We're growing in terms of product offerings, and all these things are fabulous and make for really good indicators and metrics. And so we're excited about that. So that there's, uh, and, and, and that's a nice, nice feeling after having gone through many, many years where, you know, you were always happy when there was a win because at least there was something. So that, that is, that is uh, great. But there are two, two answers, I think, in my mind, and, and maybe a little bit obscure or eccentric. So, but whenever I think of, and it's true when I go into a rental company today and I look at what customers are doing and, and just learn, I, I still love, I try to go, whenever I go and see a rental company, I always say, can we go to some locations? Because I just love being there and trying to figure out what's going on. And whenever you want to become more efficient, um, this is very simplistic, there are two ways to be successful. So if I'm um, from where you're sitting, I'm, today I'm here and tomorrow I want to be there. So how do I get there? Well, I want to make that curve as steep as possible, whether it's a growth curve or an efficiency curve or whatever it is. I just want to be as, as, as steep as possible. Um, and that's one way to get there, but there's a limit. You can only, you know, depending on what it is, you can only be this steep. And then there's another one, which is I can use um, a pretty uh, big innovation. And that isn't about the curve being as steep as possible, it's about shifting the whole curve, right? So quite often when we go in, and we say, let us uh, understand your workflow. How do you do things today? And then we say, okay, here's Smart Equip. Let's install this. And now you can replicate that same workflow. Um, you can automate every step. And then we wait for somebody to say, well, wait a minute. If it's all electronic and automated, I don't need this step and this step and that step. So now they're not talking about uh, no longer. Mm. It's no longer that I can do things faster. I can now actually skip things. I can innovate the workflow. Yeah. And too many times we've gone in and said, um, you can do that straight away. And they say, whoa, 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 this is how we do it. So you, you try to let them innovate uh, with all of that. So, so one of the two bits of success that I think of um, is what's that moment when you suddenly realize um, it's not just that they're more efficient, they're starting to do things differently, and it opens up a whole new solution set that didn't exist before. So that, that's a huge sign of success, and you see it in so many different ways. And the other one is much more simplistic. I remember this happened the first time, I think, in 2008. Uh, somebody invited me on a tour because a Swedish company was coming to tour different uh, U.S. companies. And, um, and we would go on this tour. Uh, this was actually at Sunbelt Rentals. Uh, they were hosting. And we were in Charlotte. And we had a rule that we always wear smart equipped gear if we go anywhere. And I had a long sleeve uh, black shirt. And the sun was pounding. And it was concrete everywhere. So I was just sweating. 
And this very large gentleman, very tall guy, a strong guy, he came around and uh, introduced himself um, to, to these northern Europeans that came in, who next to him looked you know, very small, and he said, how are you? And he was a, clearly a service guy, um, you know, sweating up a storm and full of grease and everything else. And then he came up to me and smiled and gave me this big bear hug. Yeah. And I thought, this is embarrassing. I don't know who this is. And I clearly <laughs> should. So I apologized. I said, I don't know um, who you are. I, I, I know we've met. And he said, I don't think we've met. But anybody who has that logo on their shirt is my friend. And then this big guy said, you know, my kid now comes with me to, uh, I used to be the wrench turner, the grease monkey. He said he actually called me. So now he, when, whenever I do overtime or it's on weekends, he wants to come along because he loves the technology I use. It's really changed my life. So that, those are the things that on a very personal basis, that's very different from the metrics. But those I remember, uh, mm -hmm. and, and there are quite a few of these. Th those are the, 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 the big, big moments. Yeah, the feeling. Oh, it's great. Feeling. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. I, I love this chat. It's been, it's been amazing. So thank you oh, thank very you. much for coming on the Rental Journal podcast. Oh, thank you very much.